Good morning. So the topic has been introed. You know we are in this series, Man of Action. Jesus is going through some things in rapid succession in Mark 6. And so I've studied this passage now for a few weeks, and um, I've asked the question, you know, how does this apply to us? How, do, how does what's going on in Nazareth, what does it mean to Highland this morning? What does it mean to me? And we'll see that in this passage, as when we get to it, that there's not really a checklist, there's no commands, there's no thou shouts. It's a, it's a simple historical narrative. We sort of observe what was going on in Nazareth, and we see Jesus' disposition. And I think if we're honest, when we get to the end, at least for me, I end up with more questions than I do answers in the six verses that we're going to get to. Um, and before we start, though, I want you to think about what amazes you. I want you to think about what amazes you. Put out all the thoughts that you know might be swirling through your head. It could be the birth of a child. It could be when you got married. It could be any amazing thing that's happened to you in your life. Jeff, I see you put your hands around your wife, or your arms around your wife. That was good. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then also, I know for some of us, amazing things might be things that were maybe tragic. I know I think of 9-11. I think of when I was a child, I remember the Challenger explosion. So our memories can also be marked by tragedy that's also amazing as well. And so once you have something, just kind of bookmark that experience. I want us to be able to relate to what it was like for Christ and what it was like for those who heard his teaching. They were both amazed. And if you had a hard time coming up with something, that's okay. I have a video that I want to show you that I think truly illustrates in modern time what amazement may look like. didn't really know there was such thing as colorblindness at the time. I think I was six or seven. I thought maybe I wasn't intelligent enough <laughs> to tell, because I didn't know, and I didn't tell my parents, so I just, I stopped painting and drawing. There's some drawings where I wish I could see how my kids put the colors together and what they were visualizing. It's not that I can't name them, there's, there's nothing there. That's gray, and that's gray, and that's gray. I've had moments where girls would make fun of me for not knowing girly shades, and I felt self-conscious about it. Sometimes I feel like there is a world of color that I'm just sort of missing out on. Colorblindness is a situation where because your eyes are different than someone else's eyes, you don't see the world the same way. Commonly, red and green don't look different, but look the same. So if there's a kind of a color filter, kind of glasses that would separate colors, they suddenly can see red and green. We developed these glasses to enable colorblind people to see color for the first time in their lives. Wow. Oh, look at that. This whole end of the, of the spectrum that I just was completely not aware of. This is amazing. I've never been able to 
see this one. And I just want to cry a little bit. <laughs> um, I never realized like how much I was affected by the fact that I can't see the world like the way that other people see the world. When he's drawing, I see him going in and out of his crayon box like 150 times sometimes. Oh wow, that's cool. And now I kind of know why. There's a lot more colors here. All these things that are intentional in life, I never caught on to it. So is that what you guys see every day? Yeah? <laughs> Yeah, just everything's flatter. Everything's, yeah, kind of, yeah. I don't want to take them off. Um, it's just dull. It's a little dull, to be honest. I never really thought about my colorblindness that much. It was just something that I had that I dealt with and that wasn't really a big deal to me. But color is an amazing experience that I think people probably take for granted. So uh, I think that's pretty amazing. We get to witness this for the first time, these people going through this. Technology has allowed us to create a pair of glasses that can take otherwise colorblind people and they can see color like they've never seen it before. I love the quote. I, I caught her name. I didn't even realize her name as we were going through. Her name was Atlee. It's a cool name. An amazing experience that people probably take for granted was her quote. I think it's very telling about our nature when we can take amazing things for granted. I think it's interesting that we can take our heartbeat, air, electricity, nature, vision, light, at some level, we all probably take these things for granted, and you may not, and that's fine, but I know that from the time I woke up this morning to the time I'm standing here now, I, it would have been impossible for me to assemble a list of all of the amazing things that happen. They all just went right over my head, I'm sure, as I drove here. And so now that we've considered what amazement really is, what modern-day amazement is, I want us to go to Mark, and we're going to get to our passage. And then we're going to, this passage we're going to read, uh, it's meant so much to me, because at its core, there's one verse that I can't get away from. And we're going to start at the end of the story this morning, and then we're going to go back to the beginning and pick up and read. And the verse that we're going to start with is the last verse in Mark 6, 1 through 6. And it's verse 6, and it reads, And he was amazed at their unbelief. And that's it. And I think if Jesus would have sent an emoji for his feelings today in the spirit of Jason and his Pokemon, if, if Jesus could have sent an emoji for his feelings, it would have been this emoji. <laughs> that wide-eyed, that surprised look. Jason's mentioned also, as we've been in this series, that as we've moved through Mark... These are almost like Twitter uh, entries in the life of Christ. And I think that if it's true in any case, in any story, it's true in this one. There are seven words, and it's about 35 characters, including spaces, that describe 
Jesus' disposition and his demeanor. There are seven words that say so much. And so what precedes verse 6 will explain why Jesus was astonished. We'll get there. But if we just read verse 6, we're left to question why he was astonished at their unbelief. And so as I started thinking about who would have been a likely crowd of unbelievers, who would this likely crowd be if we only had verse 6? What kind of list would I assemble? Who would be on my short list? And so I started thinking. I started thinking of tribes of groups of people who have never heard the gospel before. Maybe children of non-believers. They would have never had anybody to tell them about Christ. People who've never heard his teaching. Maybe they would be a likely unbeliever. What about citizens of a country that prohibit the spread of the gospel? They might be unbelievers. Or Pharisees. We read a lot about them and they, they had a unbelief going on. Maybe people who have been hurt by religion. Is it possible that they were a group of unbelievers? Maybe victims of a tragedy. Uh, tragedy. You can think of many others, probably more. But as we read on, we find that there is a rather scandalous group of unbelievers, which is why their belief, unbelief rather, was so amazing. We see in verse 1 that Jesus had left that part of the country. We're kind of walking into a story. He left at that part of the country, and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. See, this is where his families and his relatives were. This is where he was educated. No doubt, this is, uh, folks knew him on a first-name basis. This was like his home court. This was his home field. This would be his home track. Certainly, he was recognizable. And if there's anybody that we would think would believe, we'd think it would be the folks in Nazareth. In the first part of verse 2, we see that the next Sabbath he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. So they were amazed too. And if we stop here, we see that there's evidence that the people of Nazareth should have believed. But as we see the second part of verse 2, they asked, where did he get all this wisdom and power to perform such miracles. They began asking questions. Instead of responding in belief, the people began a series of responses that I think are rather astonishing. I think there are four distinct stages and responses and four conclusions that I draw from these things. And as we look at the people of Nazareth, we just can't study them and, the draw, and draw a conclusion that they were just a bunch of morons. Okay? They weren't just a bunch of idiots. If, if, if we're going to go that far with the, and just leave it right there, there's nothing we can learn. See, if we're going to read about them, we have to consider them. And if we're, cons we're going to consider them, then we need to apply them. I want to challenge us this morning, and this is really it. This is all I want us to do this morning. Are we Nazareth? Are we like Nazareth? And at a personal level, how does unbelief manifest itself in your life? Stage one of their response, instead of belief or celebration or praise or worship, was to ask questions. And see, questions in and of themselves, they're not bad. It's okay to ask questions. Especially when the motives of the one asking the questions are rooted in belief and purity and a genuineness. Someone wanting to know truth. But they asked questions. Where did he get all this wisdom and power to perform such miracles? And see, while on the surface that question may seem okay, 
we know that question was fueled by copious amounts of unbelief. Why? Because Christ was amazed at their unbelief. So I arrive at my first conclusion, and I call it Nazareth's first law of unbelief. Where an abundance of unbelief exists, so do questions with questionable motives. When we embrace unbelief like the folks of Nazareth, we also begin to ask questions that are rooted in unbelief. And when our questions to God are rooted rooted in unbelief, we can be guaranteed that they will not foster belief. They won't prove our faith, and really at their core, they're more like tests to God. And in Luke 4.12, we know that Satan was told, do not test the Lord your God. I think there's something that we can learn from that. There's something that the folks from Nazareth could have learned from that too. So how do we do this? How do we do this? How are we like Nazareth? Are our motives pure when we question God? And so I started thinking, what are some of the ways that I do this? What are some of the ways that people do this? What are some of the ways that the folks I know have done this? How about when we question the power of God to perform the supernatural or the unlikely? Lord, are you really capable of healing me? Are you really capable of healing my loved one? Can you really restore my marriage? I mean, it's, it's messed up. Can you really restore it? Can he heal my broken relationships? Are those questions that we can ask? Or is it just done? Is it better that we just move on? Is he power enough, powerful enough to conquer addictions? I know folks who are going through it. And I know he has the power to do it. But oftentimes I've seen that be questioned. When we question, what about when we question the power of God to create everything in the seen and the unseen world? Could a Jewish carpenter really be the creator of the universe? I mean, that's pretty big. How about when we question the value, the value of community? This one sort of hit me recently. Walk with me here. When everything's crashing down in life, When finances and sickness and relationships and death come, where do we turn? Do we turn inward? Do we hide? I think when we hide, we are indirectly following a path of unbelief. Do we believe and realize that we find his comfort oftentimes through and in community? Or do we hide? Sometimes questioning Sometimes these motives, these false motives, they, they show up as fear and anxiety. And I just want to pause here because I want to approach this part with, with a lot of gentleness. I know that for some, anxiety is a very real force that is gripping. And I don't doubt that there's somebody here this morning that may have awoken gripped with fear, gripped with anxiety. Maybe you didn't even sleep last night. Maybe you were disabled by an anxiety attack just this week. I know that anxiety can manifest itself in very physical ways. And when the circumstances of life collide, I know that this is real. And I know that we need to get help when this happens. And, if, and sometimes we need to continue getting help when this happens. Obviously, all of our hope does not lie in doctors and medicine And you don't need a church person telling you, if you're struggling with this morning, you don't need a church person telling you, or a TV preacher, or a name-it-claim-it proponent telling you that you can just pray your way out 
of the anxiety and the dark valley and the cloud that you're living in because you don't have enough faith. That's not what you need to hear. At at one point, about eight years ago, I reached a point in my life where focusing on an idea or a simple to-do list was seemingly impossible. I could sit at my desk, unable to put forth the effort to move to the next project or get the next task done. That alone seemed to cause anxiety. It caused tension. I did my best to hide it. I don't know if my employer knew it at the time because I did a pretty good job hiding it. And so I tried harder to no avail. I talked it over with Shay. I went, I saw my doctor. And he said, hey, here's some help. And in the form of medicine, I found some relief that would allow me to focus. It actually allowed me to focus on him. I started asking him to renew my mind, renew my brain, And months and months later, I received that help, and I was able to continue on. Help is good. There's also, though, a different type of anxiety and fear. There's a fear that can dominate our life, our thoughts, our mind, and our circumstances, and it's rooted directly in unbelief. I know this exists. I've heard stories of those that have walked through this. And the stories and anxiety is real, and it's a battle with unbelief. I'm convinced by these stories that I've heard that the battle is just as real as any flesh and blood blood battle that we might face. The promises of God are found in His Word. And I've heard that in fear and anxiety, this is the place that they run. And when they run to meditate on God's Word, they, they then ask for the help of the Holy Spirit. And as the promises of God that are found in His Word, when they clear away the scum of unbelief, the work of the Holy Spirit sets in. Because without the work of the Holy Spirit softening the way for the Word, sometimes we can, we can just stare at words on a page. But as the Holy Spirit softens, we need both. We read promises and we pray for the help and as anxiety clears, we see the good that God does have planned for us. Belief sets in, unbelief goes away, and anxiety can evaporate. For some of you, for some of us, the humbling step isn't calling the doctor necessarily. For some of us, it might be seeking God in a quiet place. That's where we battle unbelief. For some of us, it might be pouring out to him in prayer and openness and tears. Sometimes the path of escape is worship. See, our unbelief and our questions aren't only limited to that of the physical realm or our mind. We can also question his power in the unseen world, in the spiritual world, when we ask questions like, is Christ capable of taking the penalty for my sin? Is he good enough? What he accomplished on the cross, did that do it? Are his promises true? Am I willing to follow him no matter what? See, that's belief. When we latch on to his promises and we say we believe, we follow, we go. What about, can I have assurance of eternal life? That can be gripping. Or is my hope in my performance? Where does our hope lie? Is it in his control or it is in what we can do? 
I want to be careful because I know we can ask questions and that's good. But our questions must be asked from a posture of trust and belief. And when our questions begin from a posture of doubt and unbelief, we really aren't asking questions. We're just offering challenges. See, my children, they're full of questions, and I love it. I love being a dad that gets asked all the questions. It's fantastic. And it's awesome when they ask me questions that are rooted in trust and the anticipation that I will give them a trustworthy answer. But occasionally I get hit with one of those questions that's less of a desire of knowledge or an honest answer, and at its core, it's really a challenge to my authority or a question that isn't honest in its intent or motive at all. And I think if we're parents in this room, we've all probably had some of those questions in our life. This was the posture of Nazareth. I want us to get that. This was the posture of Nazareth. After the people of Nazareth started asking questions, they moved to stage two of their response. Their unbelief became so strong strong that they began to scoff, mock and prod. And despite the proof that he offered, their unbelief became so great that the wrong questions became scoffing. Then they scoffed, he's just a carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. As I continued to ponder these events, my mind went to situations of conflict in the business and the political and maybe the legal environment where the opposition uses name-calling and scoffing rhetoric as an attempt to bring down one's character. In the legal environment, this is called character assassination. And this is exactly what they were doing. So I came to my second conclusion, Nazareth's second law of unbelief. Where an abundance of unbelief exists, character will come under attack, and specifically Christ's character will come under attack. According to uslegal.com, because it was the first thing that came up in my Google search, character assassination refers to the slandering or verbal attack on a person with the intention of destroying or damaging that person's reputation or confidence. Once done, these acts often are often difficult to reverse or rectify. The damage sustained can last a lifetime or for historical figures and important personalities for many centuries after their death. It involves a deliberate attempt to destroy a person's reputation, especially by criticizing them in an unfair or dishonest way. Christ lived a life of constant character assassination, and no other historical figure has withstood this attempted character assassination like him. And for centuries, unbelief, that's what fuels this attempt, these attempts to bring him down. For centuries, it's continued. 2,000 years later, there are organizations, there's money spent, there's energy spent, still trying to break him down. To say that unbelief isn't a force is to minimize its power. Strangely, despite everything they saw, they somehow decided that questioning and scoffing would be better than simple belief. And I think this is crazy how unbelief in the life of these people who were exposed directly to Christ actually prevented them from embracing who Christ was, despite the teaching, despite the wisdom and the power and the miracles that amazed him, amazed them, they still rejected him. 
This would be just like the colorblind person that we saw in the video. Just like the colorblind person being amazed by the color, witnessing its brilliance, and instead of enjoying and embracing this newfound ability, they begin to question the scientists and the developers and the technicians, asking them who their family members were, as if that mattered then utterly scoffing at the invention that they experienced. And this is where I have to pause because the verse isn't even over, and I kind of get a little ticked off at them. I get this righteous bubble that sort of starts welling up inside of me, and it kind of makes me want to shake them. Can't you see? His miracles, his wisdom... You said he was amazed, his teaching. You said so yourself. And I have to kind of pause because I wonder, how do we show unbelief in like, like this in this area? How are we like Nazareth? How am I like Nazareth? How do I scoff? And, and in this area, one thing comes to mind for me. What about when we place reason and art and science and human creativity as greater than belief. Stop and think about that. We have museums that contain the greatest works of art that we've ever seen. And we flock to those places because we think they're really cool things, and they are. What if we had museums of simple pictures, Polaroid shots, of people who believed? And we, con we contemplated their story of belief and his story of rescue. Sometimes I wonder if we really think that belief is greater. What if the culmination of all human creativity could conjure up less amazement than that of a Roman officer or the unbelief of the folks at Nazareth? See, when we place reason and science as art as more profound than belief, when we say that a great flood really didn't occur, when we question whether Jonah really did survive in the belly of a fish, or that maybe Jesus didn't really walk on water, maybe there was some stones there, maybe he didn't really calm the storm, maybe that was just a meteorological phenomenon. See, we could keep going with all his accomplishments and all the amazing things that he's done. When we start to question these things... We're questioning his power. And it's exactly what the folks of Nazareth did. And so we move on to stage three of their response. They mention, very shortly, and his sisters live right here among us. And so as my bubble of righteousness was building, okay, it really gets popped right here. Because I think if I'm honest, and I think if we're honest, the same sort of unbelief can creep into our lives. They said, and his sisters live right here among us. Clearly they had knowledge of him. But strange how all of this knowledge and exposure didn't result in anything else. Didn't result in anything good. So I come to my third law of unbelief for Nazareth. Where an abundance of unbelief exists, familiarity is present. And I'll explain that. Jesus told them, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own family. I've heard stories of those who have grown up in the church. They might have, been, might have been exposed to his teaching. Maybe they've even witnessed great things, but at some point they begin to question him 
And they begin to scoff at him. And maybe that's your story. Maybe that's the story of someone you know. Or maybe you're wrestling with that yourself. So how do we do this? How does familiarity work its way into the life of a Christ follower? And how does it affect our belief? I thought of four things that were very personal to me. I know that I have experienced. I've experienced this familiarity. And I think, if we're honest, we might have too. I don't know. Do we know more about Jesus than we have experienced of Jesus? Do we know more about him than what we've experienced of him? Do we allow guilt to prevail over our sin rather than the freeing blood of Christ? See, when we allow guilt to prevail over our life, that's us saying the blood, what Christ did, it it wasn't enough. I, I need to bear the weight of this somehow, some way. Or maybe you're saying, John, you don't know what I've done that's so bad. You're right, I don't. But I know that Christ's blood is enough. And so when we allow guilt to prevail, that's a form of unbelief. Do you stop praying because you haven't heard or seen answers to your prayers? Or you question whether he even hears you? That's also a form of unbelief. God, are you there? It's a good question to ask. It's it's okay to ask, are you there? But know when you ask it that he is there. And the last one is, would you describe your spiritual life as rote, boring, or irrelevant. And this is one that I can say I have I've fought many, many, many years. Perhaps Jesus is just too familiar. So how should we respond when he's getting a little too familiar? One thing I consider is worship. Worship is where the familiarity fades and we see his brilliance. And it's amazing to me how when my life starts to becoming rote, boring, or irrelevant, I'm not worshiping. I can count on it. I can see it in my life. And there are times when I can put on a song and play it over and over again. And all of a sudden, the irrelevance, the boring, the rote, it just kind of goes away. Romans 1, 21-22 shows us the result of a familiar knowledge of, of God. Paul isn't writing specifically about the people of Nazareth, but we do see a pattern. He says, yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like, and as a result, their minds became dark and confused, claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. So, I don't know when it was, it was six months to a year ago, I'm horrible with time, but Drew and I were going to Atlanta, it was like a Thursday night, and we were going for a... Uh, I was actually going to do some work down there on a Friday, so I bring my son with me. And we get south of Greenville, and I said, Hey, Drew, you still awake? And he is in the back of the truck, not the back bed of the truck, sorry, in the back seat of the truck, asleep. And he didn't say anything, and so I knew he, w- he must have been out. And so I was contemplating the week, and, and honestly, I was tired, and I think I was a little um, bored feeling irrelevant, feeling that rote life going along. And Doreen had uh, introduced uh, us to a new song. I can't remember if it was Fight Club. don't know if it was Sunday morning. But it was actually the song that she, I think, opened up with this morning, Good, Good Father. And um, I didn't know that was going to be on the set list this morning, and I think it's so perfect that it is. That song I played from somewhere south of Greenville 
Not quite to the Georgia line yet. That's all I remember. Where would that be? Like Clemson? I can't say Clemson here. I don't like Clemson. Sorry. Anderson. Sorry. That was like Anderson all the way to Marietta, Georgia. And I played that song over and over and over. And I can do that. And Shay knows about that. And I'm sure that that probably doesn't help our song list. But I played that song over and over. And you know, the irrelevance and the boring and the rote, it was gone. And I think that's what worship can do when you're feeling that way. I don't know how you worship. Put in some music. That's what I do. And I play that song. I will wear it out. So we digress into verse 3 and into stage 4. And we see that their deep unbelief and their questioning and their scoffing and now their familiarity, it's brought them to to a point of being deeply offended and they refuse to believe in him. And I think this is the part of the passage that becomes most unbelievable to me. They, they, they start asking questionable questions. They scoff. They attack his character. And as a result, they are deeply offended. Man, we, we haven't changed much in this world. I started thinking about it. And I'm like, we're kind of the same today as they were. That's just the same thing happens. I can imagine what the conversations must have been like had we been around. Can you believe this? Joseph, the carpenter's son, thinks he's a prophet. I know for a fact that he didn't get any formal religious education. And we do this today. Where's his degree? Where was he ordained? What books does he read about? Where's he getting this teaching of his? Does he really think that he's somebody great? Who does he think he is? This was their line of questioning, no doubt. This brings me to Nazareth's fourth law of unbelief, the last one, where an abundance of unbelief exists, pride thrives. And I say this because belief in Jesus requires humility. We can't bring pride to the table and believe him at the same time. So I believe the opposite is true of unbelief, meaning Unbelief is a garden that allows pride to grow richly, so much so that belief is simply not allowed in that space. Pride becomes a fertilizer that actually allows unbelief to grow and prevents belief from flourishing. And it's a, if it's a cycle, that it will continue and it will continue, and someone has to break that. Pride, when mixed with unbelief, it's a cocktail of incredible power and potency that blinds our eyes and deadens our hearts. And what's worse is that there are things that God won't do for us when we're proud. So we have to, quest- have to ask the question, is there something that God's not doing for me because of pride? Is that going on? Because we see in verse 5, and because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them, which blows my mind that he did anything there at all. And also, I just want to say this. It's not because he wasn't powerful enough that he didn't do any more miracles. Sometimes we can ask that question. Well, why couldn't he do something? Is there something that God couldn't do? No. Their unbelief prevented them from receiving it. We're in a culture that is so much like Nazareth. I actually Googled for the fun of it, I'm offended. I did. 
And it was amazing the amount of comedy mixed with truth. It was funny, but it was also sad because we're in a world that's offended by everything. So how should we respond? Are we the same way? Is it possible? James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace, grace to the humble. I think we need to be more concerned. I'm just going to say this. I think we need to be more concerned about pride than we do who's going to be the next president. I think we need to be more concerned about pride than anything else this morning. Because there's nothing else that we could be concerned about more that would actually potentially disqualify us from the hand of God. If he couldn't do miracles because of their unbelief, is there something that he's not doing in our life? So how did it end up for Christ? How did it end up for him? We get to the end. He's amazed by unbelief. Was he accepted? Does his hometown rally around him? Is there like a a feel-good ending to this? Did they show him the appreciation that he really deserved? We fast forward in the story, and we know he was rejected. His friends, they denied him. He actually predicts his own death and resurrection. That's amazing. His authority was challenged. He was betrayed. He was arrested. He was put on trial. And then he was found to be innocent. And then there was this. We have the cross. We have it over here too. There was the cross. The band, you can come forward. See, the story of Nazareth isn't really about how bad they were. It's not about how bad they were. It's easy for us to sit back and think about them. They were just ignorant how how offended they were. All of their impure motives. Yes, Jesus was amazed at their unbelief. And there's no question we should be too. We should marvel and we should be astonished just as Jesus was. But what's also astonishing is that despite our unbelief, that he would provide a way. And in so many ways, we have started out just like Nazareth. And in some ways, we might even be worse. I don't know. Romans 5.10 For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son... While we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. While we were still his enemies, I can't get off that. I can't get away from that. While I was still his enemy. This says so much about the possibility of restoration that we have. We weren't good enough, but he loved us anyway. And we didn't earn it. But he gave us salvation. The cross isn't about two sides of the room either. It's not about the good side of the room or the bad side of the room. It's easy to read this as Highland Christian Church and those Nazareth folks, the bad side of the room. And, you know, we're over here like we're better. It's easy for me to do that. I don't know if it's easy for you to do that. It's about people who were dead dead, apart from God, who are brought to life by grace through faith in the death, burial, resurrection, and life of Christ. So just as the glasses 
Just as those glasses revealed color to the colorblind people, it revealed their colorblindness too. Because all they saw was what they saw. He does the same thing for us. When we see the brilliance that we can run to, when we see the life, when we see life the way we're meant to see it, life in Him, think about that, life in Him, that's what we were created to see. So I don't know where you're at today. Man, we've asked a lot of questions. We've asked questions of pride and anxiety and fear and on and on and on and on and on. Where does your belief, what's it rooted in? What is it rooted in? You know, there could be people here that just need to pray. Lord, I, I need to worship this morning. We'll have time for that. On this side of the room, we do it every week because I know that there are people that may need to be prayed for. You may be dealing with something that's just way over your head and you just need somebody else to hear it. So Joe leaders, small group leaders, and elders will be over here. I'll be standing over here too. Maybe there's somebody here that you're like, you know, I, belief has no place in my life right now. I can really resonate with this unbelief because I can completely question God. And if that's something you're being called away from, I would love to chat with you. We can go grab a coffee, coffee, a, a, a lunch. We're not going to figure it all out this morning. But I just want to say that we have that space available. Lord, thank you for giving us glasses in your son so that we can see our unbelief and then see life in him. Lord, help me put off unbelief. Help us not see the folks at Nazareth as these group of bumbling idiots, Lord, and that we're just like them. Lord, help us work belief in us, Lord. Do that work. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.